welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week, we've got a few things in store for you. First, I have a monologue about the human reaction to COVID-19. Next, I recently participated in a book club about malignant, how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. This book club was done here with some of the fellows at OHSU via Zoom, and I'm going to bring parts of our conversation to you. You won't want to miss this episode of Plenary Sessions. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First up, COVID-19, what has it done to us? Over the last week, I've had a chance to survey the landscape of academia, and my diagnosis is critically ill. I feel that the way in which we as academics are responding to COVID-19 gives us much reason to be very, very concerned about the health of science. I'm going to give you some specific examples. First up, on Monday of this week, Dr. Jeffrey Flyer, former dean of Harvard Medical School, and I wrote an opinion on STAT, first opinion, entitled, Scientists Who Express Different Views on COVID-19 Should Be Heard, Not Demonized. Our argument was pretty simple, really, which is that we must all admit one thing, which is that nobody, no single scientist out there, whether you're an epidemiologist, whether you're a virologist, whether you're a modeler, whether you're an infectious disease expert, whether you're a critical care doctor, or whether you're a meta-researcher, no single person knows everything about COVID-19. Nobody is going to be right about everything. That's one point. Two, we're making huge decisions on a daily basis in the setting of scientific uncertainty. We're deciding to open and close large swaths of the economy, school, with huge ramifications on human health when it comes to education, insofar as education drives human health, insofar as economic activity and wealth drives human health, and insofar as a virus spreading drives human health. What we're doing has implications for all these things. There are many ways in which human health is being affected. In fact, human health is directly affected by the virus COVID-19. Human health is indirectly affected by the virus COVID-19 when it gets in the way of a properly functioning society. And human health is indirectly affected by what we do in response to COVID-19. All these three things are true. And so we don't know what the best answer is, Dr. Flyer and I. We are observers. We are curious people. We are reading a lot of people. We don't know what the right answer is. But we are concerned, I think, with a growing movement among academics to want to get people to shut up. And that was what we wrote about in the op-ed. We used one case in point, which was John Unides, but I'm going to give you another example in this podcast that goes beyond it. But 
you know, John Ioannidis came out in mid-March ahead of everybody, and he argued in a provocative piece in STAT that we didn't have enough information on the prevalence of COVID-19 and the consequences of the infection, and we didn't have enough information to justify the current extreme lockdown measures, which he hypothesized could be dangerous in and of themselves. And we followed it from that point and noticed that, you know, in the end of March, people really went after John pretty hard on Twitter. The sorts of things I was reading was, why is he saying this? Well, you know, he's just saying this. He's just a contrarian who wants to be contrary. You know, he's just a guy who, whatever you say, you say the sun, you say the sun is warm. He says, no, it's cold. You say it's day. No, he says it's night. He just says the opposite just to say the opposite. And I think that that kind of criticism is a bit unfair. You know, even if you don't like what he says and disagree with everything he says, you got to give him credit that he, in fact, believes what he says. And in fact, I think I discussed that on a podcast here. I think he is a genuine person who is, you know, pretty consistent in his views. And he's not being contrary for the sake of being contrary. I could tell you that much. And I discussed that on this podcast. Well, you know, I think the Twitter dialogue kind of just escalated over time. You know, people said uh, stronger things on Twitter uh, the man has never done good research. His whole career is a bunch of garbage research. He likes to criticize others, but he produces the same garbage. I mean, these are the kinds of things I read. Then, of course, the Santa Clara results came out. This was a seroprevalence study. And, you know, if we're all honest with each other, we all want to know seroprevalence across the country. And I've been very critical, I think, of federal efforts to not gather seroprevalence data. I want seroprevalence in as many places as I can get it with standardized methodology and a variety of tests because we really don't have a gold standard yet looking at IgG, looking at IgM, and you know what? Get some PCR at the same time. The more data you collect, the better. Random spot checks, repeat the spot checks over and over. We need this information desperately to know where is this virus, where is it going, what's its pace, how's it changing? Now, that's the kind of information you need. So I've been a big proponent for that. So they did a study. And you know what? A lot of the criticism about the study was spot on accurate. There were some issues with specificity, which led to the perverse conclusion that many of the positives might be false positives. There was an issue with how a confidence interval was calculated. I think that was a fair point. And then there's the issue with whether or not the people who were solicited were truly random. I think that's always a great question when you look at random seroprevalence, that it may be non-random. One common thought was that people who are sick may be more likely to go seek the test. But I think you can't dismiss the alternative idea, which is that you're running this test in Santa Clara County, California, home of a bunch of rich Silicon Valley types. And the other possibility is that people who want to get the test are the worried well, who are really very wealthy, well-connected, hyper-educated people who want to be tested just to know that they're safe and sound. They're super worried about it. And I think fewer people speculated that way, but it's fair to speculate that way too. So are there problems with the Santa Clara study? Absolutely. Um, and it came out. And then the authors, I think, you know, they did what everyone I see is doing now, which is they turned to the media. And, you know, I have criticism of that. Um, they went on different television shows. They wrote op-eds. News stories covered this, saying that, you know, this could potentially be spread a lot further than we think. Um, they've been now, I keep track of this, and there's a spreadsheet that somebody made public about 30 different studies that look at seroprevalence. And there's a huge range. You know, New York's at the high end, and their study was about... If I recall correctly, between two to four percent ish range uh, it was on the lower end, but it was a place that had very few documented cases, so that really had a larger implication. Uh, on the on the New York end, we're talking anything between twenty to thirty percent uh, seroprevalence. Anyway, my point here isn't the specific results because I think it's fair to go after the specific results to say there are problems with this preprint. Totally fair. What really concerned Dr. Flyer and myself is that the reaction on Twitter was a little bit harsher than that. 
be quickly became a blood sport. People were saying things like, you know, John Yonides is a, I, I saw somebody say, you know, he's a, he's a medical statistician and a mediocre epidemiologist. Here's one. Yonides is a fucking snowflake. He made a career out of pointing out the methodologic flaws in other people's work and complaining about overhype, but he goes crying about being the victim when his deeply flawed and overhyped work comes under the same scrutiny. Okay, strong. Uh, Yonides is a mediocrity and a prevaricator who never had anything of value to offer and who now, after years of coasting on hype, cannot even formulate a simulacrum of a coherent rational argument. Reading Yonides is like rereading the emperor's new clothes. Boy, that is harsh. And then, you know, Venkmurthy points out, and I've seen this, people say, you know, the man's going to have blood on his hands. He's going to have death on his hands. Um, I saw another one uh, by a gentleman who we're going to come back to. This is uh, Dr. Bergstrom from University of Washington. He said he took a line out of the article about John. He said, I swear this is a news story, not a personals ad. Don't at me. It says, Dr. Yonides, 54, likes metaphors, a New York native, grew up in Athens. Um, his interests are fencing, swimming, hiking, and playing basketball. Okay. You know how these news stories are. They like to toss in this little fluff. Um, there are a whole bunch of nasty comments and somebody took his why most published research findings are false and they kind of photoshopped in why most of my published research findings are false and you know people said uh that his work was wrong that he has a bias i don't know i don't understand his motivation here what's driving him he used to be a good scientist now he's gotten off the rails all this kind of stuff okay so one thing i want to say here is you know i'm not even going to argue that you can never use an ad hominem in this business okay although i you know i tend to avoid that um, but I am going to argue that if somebody throws a pebble at somebody, they're just throwing a pebble at them. But if a thousand people throw a pebble at somebody, that's called a stoning. And there is something to be said for when the mob goes after you. It really hurts. It hurts in a way that an individual insult doesn't hurt. If somebody called me a moron or an idiot or a fucking snowflake or they took a line out of a ad about uh, about a newspaper story about me and said you know i'm i swear it's a news story not a personal ad or i was a mediocrity and a prevaricator who never had anything of value to offer i think each of those insults individually would kind of bounce off of me but if that came out from many 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 people i think that that takes a toll on a person that is really harsh um i, I don't know what to say i think that's that's savage and at the end of the day this guy is, you're disagreeing with this guy, and you might be right, and he might be totally wrong, but he's not insulting you like this, um, and, and, and it's not just one person insulting him, it's like a lot of people, and, and that's what gave us the pause, and, and so in our article, we talk about scientists who express different views on COVID-19 should be heard, not demonized. What we're saying is that if you're going to take somebody who says something that's against the grain, the one person who might say that universal face masks really don't have great data and you crucify them or the one person who says, you know, maybe your lockdown should be restrictions should ease even faster than a test, treat, isolate kind of strategy and you crucify them. You're going to make it much harder for other academics to say, you know, I kind of lean that way too or I agree or I have another view. You're going to make people shut up and you don't want to make people shut up in this situation. You want to make reasonable people open up and you want to make people, reasonable people open up for the same reason that Antonin Scalia had a counterclerk. So what am I talking about? Um, you know, Antonin Scalia, he's a justice of the Supreme Court, right-leaning guy, originalist thinker, somebody whom I really disagree with 
the thousand percent on every single issue. But once I heard one thing he did, I realized that this was the greatest thing that man could ever do, which was every time he hired law clerks, or not every time, but often when he hired law clerks, he hired a law clerk whom he called a counter clerk. He hired three law clerks of his four law clerks who generally agree with him, see the world from his whatever point of view. But he hired one person who saw the world differently, who was a left-leaning liberal kind of law, law student. And he brought him in and he, he included them in the, in the discussions and they helped write the papers. And his point was that, you know, we're going to disagree on everything. And ultimately, you know, he's the justice. It's going to be his, him writing the thing. Um, opinion, that's what they call it. Um, but I'm going to keep somebody at the table who disagrees with me to maybe temper what I have to say, to insert needed caveats, to give me some perspective, or maybe sometimes make me think a little bit harder. And there's sort of a legendary case, I think Lawrence v. Texas, where um, the the counter clerk, this was about, um, I, I would just say, this was, an, this was a case, a jurisprudence about um, some of the laws that were discriminatory towards gay and lesbian um, individuals in America. Uh, at least as I understand it. And in this opinion, Justice Scalia ended up writing some language that is quite inflammatory towards somebody in the LGBT community. Um, and the point that was made was the counterclerk did not participate in that dialogue, but maybe that's where you need the counterclerk. Not because the counterclerk could have overruled his decision, which you know, many of us might view as a bad decision, but at least so the counterclerk could have said, you've written this in a very hostile and negative way, and you really need to rewrite some of these parts. What do I, so what's my point here? My point is that maybe even if you think John is nothing but a counter clerk, that he's nothing but somebody who you will overrule, you want to have somebody like him at the table to temper what you are saying, to make you rethink, to make you consider blind spots, some um, unanticipated consequences you may have missed. You want to keep him at the table. And if you criticize his study, that's totally fine. I think it's 100% appropriate. But when you go after a person themselves and say they are a mediocrity and a prevaricator, they cannot, they have coasted on hype for years, that they're a fucking snowflake, that they're, you know, this is, he's, this is a news story, it's not a personal ad. When you go to that level, I mean, I think you're hitting below the belt. And, you know, some people said to me that, um, that I have previously called um, some studies stupid. And I would concede, I'm sure I have done that. Um, but I hope, and I'm, tend to be very disciplined on this, that I've never called the individual who wrote the study stupid. I am pretty careful to draw the distinction that there is a stupid study, um, but the individual who wrote it, I'm sure, is actually quite thoughtful or perhaps, you know, whatever. I, I try not to comment about the person. But that said, I'll go one more step than that and argue that you've never heard me call something stupid when I'm the 10,000th person to call it stupid. I tend to pick studies that no one else is talking about. That's what I like to talk about. I, I, don't feel, um, I don't feel the desire to throw the 50th stone at somebody who just got hit with 49 stones. And, and I think that's an important distinction. And, and that's something that's been unleashed by social media is this mob rule. And that's something that's really chilling. And I'll give you one more example of this kind of way in which um, our behavior is going overboard. So in one respect, you know, a lot of people in this mob rule can throw a little bit of a personal attack on somebody and it can be quite chilling. In another respect, one person can go way overboard. So this was a um, tweet that was posted by Angela Rasmussen, who is a virologist. And Dr. Rasmussen made some comments that the evidence for universal cloth masks was, um, I think, not terrific. And then she posted an email that I think might have been forwarded to her by her boss from Dr. Jeremy Howard. 
an academic at University of San Francisco who writes, um, Dr. Lipkin, I noticed recent public statements by Angela Rasmussen, CC'd. She stated on Twitter that, quote, masks for all, the movement that this gentleman started, is not the only answer to COVID-19, nor has the founder of the movement analyzed the data correctly or grasped what it actually indicates. While the first part of the sentence is correct, um, the second is not. She is retweeting a link of a blog post. The blog post claims are that our literature review are not accurate. I would like to see a public retraction of the claim that our data analysis is faulty. You know, you can't email someone's boss for a public retraction of a tweet. That is overboard. That is way too much. And what are you guys arguing about? You're arguing about universal cloth mask, which... You know what we want? We need academics to argue about universal cloth mask. I've also looked at the data and I conclude it is not terrific. And the people who are promulgating it are making a lot of assumptions. So the point of the op-ed that Dr. Flyer and I were saying is that we want academics to be able to express a broad range of interpretations and opinions. We think it's important to hear, consider, and debate these views without ad hominem attacks or animus. COVID has toppled a branching chain of dominoes that will affect health and survival in many ways, and none of us know all the full effects. When the dust settles, no one's going to be 100% right. Um, we believe the bar to stifling or ignoring academics who are willing to debate the alternate positions in public should be very, very high. Um, and I think that's so important. Um, so, you know, after this article came out, Carl Bergstrom tweeted that the former dean of Harvard Medical School, Jeff Flyer, is saying, I silence John Ioannidis. And I was like, what? One, I was like, when the former dean, Jeff Flyer, the, he and I wrote the article together. It says by Vinay Prasad and Jeff Flyer. But in all the tweets by Dr. Bergstrom, I don't appear anymore. It's just Jeff Flyer versus Dr. Bergstrom. And and Jeff Flyer is saying that Dr. Bergstrom silenced John Ioannidis. And as, you know, somebody who co-wrote the article... I had no clue what he was talking about. And honestly, for a moment, I wondered who the hell Dr. Bergstrom was because I didn't even know. I was like, what the, who is this guy? I don't even know this dude. And why does he think that we're saying that, you know, he silenced John Ioannidis? And then I looked really closely and I found that, you know, we had had many, many examples of sort of ad hominem attacks. And somehow in the writing of this, there were like two links that got tossed in there, one to that prevaricator comment and the other to the comment that, you know, he ended up making, which was, I swear this is a news story, not a personal ad. don't at me, um, highlighting the fact that John likes to fence, swim, and play basketball. And, um... And I guess he took that, that we were like talking about him individually. And, you know, I really got offended by that for a few reasons. One, what the heck, where did I go? I didn't, I wrote this article and why am I not being mentioned? I think, you know, it's, it's a nice story to say the Dean of Harvard Medical School is attacking you as a professor, but maybe it's not a terrific story to say some junior faculty at OHSU and the Dean of Harvard Medical School is attacking you as a full professor. That's kind of a weirder story to tell. And so he omitted the part that didn't fit his story. Two, you know, we, we, we're not saying one person can silence one person, and we, we're, that's such a sort of a straw man version of our argument. We're saying that when a thousand people say somebody is a mediocrity or, you know, is just a, a contrarian to be contrary, is just an idiot, uh, a prevaricator, uh, uh, is a fucking snowflake, when a lot of people gang up like that, that is silencing. That's very different than one person. And so, you know, I thought I, I was very offended by Dr. Bergstrom's tweet because I thought... You know, he he wants to twist our, our, I think, rather fair and balanced article into something that's just about him and Jeff Flyer, which it isn't. It's about a lot of people, not one person, not two people, not 20 people, 50 people or more, who are academics throwing a little stone at a guy mostly because they don't like what he has to say. 
Um, in addition to the fact that, you know, there may be some flaws in his study, but they're, they're going a little below the belt. They're throwing personal insults at a guy who, you know, has a point of view they don't like. And, and one person doing it, two people doing it, five people doing it, that's not chilling. Carl Bergstrom does not silence John Ioannidis by himself. But Carl Bergstrom and 100 other people making jokes, making insults, that's going to make somebody not want to talk. Of course it is. In fact, all of these people who are going after everybody for having any view that's not, you know, in support of maximum restriction face shield hand coverings and gloves, um, maximum face shield restrictions, gloves, masks, anybody who has anything other than that view is getting obliterated on Twitter. So that's why you're not going to see me keep tweeting about how the masks data is really not good, even though I feel that way. I have held back a lot um, because I don't want to be crucified by this mob, uh, you know, for 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 saying that the data for cloth masks is not terrific. I don't want to I don't want to die on that hill. Um, I don't want to to even comment on half these issues uh, because they have made it a hostile environment. Uh, and it's not it's not Bergstrom. It's not this other person. It's not these other person. It's it's everybody together. And, you know, I recently recorded a podcast. Somebody said, well, what can we do about it? And I was like, you know, you don't need to be the 10th person to trash something. You can be the first or second person. And if you're not the first or second person to trash something, let it go. And on this podcast, I imagine, I, in fact, I know it to be true. I'm never the 10th person to trash something. Uh, I don't do that. I'm the first person to trash something. I find it interesting to pick articles that no one is talking about critically, like Bill Cap, like Polo, like, um, you know, um, I don't know what else have I talked about on this podcast. There are many episodes. Um, the kind of articles that nobody's talking about, and I like to cr cr criticize that. Uh, and 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 I am very uh, I am very strict about not going after the person and going after the argument. Um, I have I don't believe I've ever called someone a uh, snowflake or mediocrity on this podcast. I am very disciplined about that. And, and if I've erred, I apologize. I think it's natural for somebody to err, um, but I've certainly never never taken up with the mob. Um, and I've never thrown a stone at somebody who just got hit with 49 stones because at some point it's not a pebble, it's it's uh, stoning. Uh, okay, and so that's what we're trying to talk about here in this article. Um, asking somebody's boss uh, to retract their tweets, that's a despicable move. In fact, I will just say this, there is never a reason you should never email someone's boss about the stated opinion of an academic, period. There is no grounds for that. If you disagree with what any other academic has said on any academic matter, not sort of a social political matter, any academic matter, your only recourse is one, email them and ask them to change their views or persuade them, two, to write a critical article about them. Uh, but that's it. You don't get to email their boss. If you email someone's boss, you are engaging in a very despicable tactic a incredibly despicable tactic. I despicable is a mild word for that tactic. That is a savage tactic. That is really, really horrible to do, and and I strongly disagree with that kind of tactic. And it is so chilling. Nobody will ever want to talk about cloth masks. It's just like they tell little children. Nobody's going to want to play with you when you're a bully. Nobody's going to want to play with you on universal cloth masks when you're a bully. No one's going to want to play with you about whether or not current social isolation should be continued or, or mitigated or, or decreased or increased. 
Uh, no one's going to want to play with you about whether or not Sweden is doing the better thing than Norway or New Zealand or South Korea. No one's going to want to play with you if you, you, you kill a man for one point of view. No one will want to play with you. Interestingly, I lapsed and said men when I usually say people, but in this case, it is notably 100% men. I was unable to find any comment by a woman that went below the belt that was a uh, unfair comment. Uh, and that's just a matter of fact. It was 100% men in this case. It was like 20 or 30 or 40 or more men writing uh, mean things, uh, personal things about uh, Dr. Ioannidis. Uh, when you don't need to do that, you can criticize his study. And already, uh, at the time of this recording, the new preprint is up. They've tightened the conference interval. The specificity is higher than they thought. Some of the criticism, you know, let's see where it stands. But, you know, let's have a clean fight. Let's fight fairly. Um, and and let's try to encourage people to argue the point of view that we don't like. Not because we are going to um, agree with them, but because they might just be a counterclerk and they might get us to have a little humility or insert some needed caveats. And even if that's all they do, they serve an important and vital purpose. And I, I guess I guess I'm scared because today it's going to be cloth masks and you know social isolation, but tomorrow it's not going to be. It's going to be some other new drug or device, and somebody's going to come in with a view that the majority thinks is wrong and is killing people, and they're going to crucify that person. and And I don't want to live in that world. I do not want to live in that world. I will. Not, I'm not going to play. I, even if I'm on the side of the majority, I don't want to live in a world where somebody with an unorthodox view gets killed, gets crushed on social media. I'm not going to play. I'm going to be off Twitter. And, you know, I might even bow out of academia. I just go see patients at private practice. I'm not going to play this game. This is a horrible game you're playing. Um, and, and you know, I was offended that Dr. Bergstrom, he reads our article, which I thought, you know, we spent so much time and I encourage people who listen to this podcast to read it. You know, we're really trying to say something, and I regret that it even cited his tweet, which I say is in error and errant, and that's why I have had the article corrected and no longer cites his tweet, because it shouldn't have cited his tweet. It should have cited all 500 tweets or 100 tweets, not just one person's tweet, because not one person can silence another person. It's a mob effect. Um, I regret it did that, but for him to turn it about Carl Bergstrom and Jeff Flyer, some David and Goliath story, and Vinay Prasad, who... By the way, the first author of the paper disappears in this story. You know, I, I, I can't stand for that kind of revisionist history. Um, so what are the takeaway points here? Um, you don't have to agree with the man. I totally get it. I don't even, I, you know, you don't have to agree with everything he says, but you can't kill him. You can't kill him with stones. A hundred people can't throw stones at him because you will have something you do not want that is worse which is you will have nobody who ever says anything other than the mainstream Twitterverse, which is likely skewed differently um, in terms of beliefs than average people, which I think we have to appreciate. It's likely skewed differently, and you will have no one ever commenting. You already have, I believe, people with views on universal cloth masks who are not saying them because we don't want to get killed. We don't want to get taken to task by the mob. And you have a lot of people who may have views about social isolation in places that are not reaching maximum healthcare capacity with views who don't want to talk about it. I don't know. I'm just speculating. I don't even want to talk about COVID because honestly, I want to go back to talking about cancer medicine, which is what I like to talk about. And I'm going to come back in a future date and talk about a lap rib and prostate cancer. And I'm going to talk about tucatinib and uh, breast cancer. But I had to talk about this today. Okay, so bottom line here is don't email anyone's boss um, ever. 
uh, ever, ever. I mean, you, you should email someone's boss if um, there is something they did that uh, I think crossed sort of a social line. Don't ever email someone's boss for a legitimate view on an academic issue, okay? If you want to feel tempted to email their boss, I suggest you look in the mirror for a long period of time and think, is this the kind of person you want to be? And I say that as somebody whose boss has been emailed about for points of view I've taken, which I think is very, very despicable. Next, I would say there are going to be people out there with views you don't like, and you have to let them continue as long as they're within a range of reasonable views. You know, we also make the point in the article that I should state as well, which is, to be clear, Americans have no obligation to take every scientist's idea seriously. Misinformation is abundant from snake well cues to conspiracy theories. You don't have to listen to everything Dr. Oz is saying. You don't have to have a con- believe every conspiracy theorist. But for academics who have a sort of a reasonable range of views, like universal cloth mask, like I would put John in there, a reasonable range of views, you got to at least not kill the person, you know kill his argument, but don't kill the person, or you're going to live in a world where no one will ever disagree with you. And that is a totalitarian hellscape that I don't want to play. I don't want to be a part of that world. The next point I will make is don't say that some points of view are so bad that they will kill people. I think that's very theatrical because the person who holds the other point of view may believe that you are killing people. You see, in this particular case, Professor Ioannidis may believe that lockdowns that are too strong a measure in many places um, may result in poor economic opportunities, unemployment, and even death from deferred or delayed medical care, and that may result in more deaths than had we not had the lockdown in the first place. I don't know. He may believe that. But my point here is that one cannot play a moral card and say that only our point of view is right because the other point of view kills people. If part of the disagreement is what actually kills people, you know, that's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a circular argument. Um, You are debating what is actually health maximizing. That's the debate. Um, So you can't play some Trump card saying, well, my point of view kills us people. That's precisely the debate itself. Okay. So you, you can't say that. Okay. So that's why I'm really depressed about the state of, I think, academia where, you know, People want to ridicule somebody. People want to mock them. People want to crush them. You know, basically because they wrote an op-ed and did a study with a lot of flaws and did some um, news stories that, you know, are in dubious um, outlets like Fox News or something like that. But, you know, if we're perfectly honest, I've been saying that about, you know, nutritional epidemiology for decades. They're doing tons of news stories that are misleading the public. They're sucking up tons of capital. They've been doing tons of flawed research. And... You know, a lot of people agree with me, but but I've never joined a mob that tried to silence them. And in fact, they're not silenced. They're, they've churned out as many nutritional epidemiology studies as they've ever churned out before. So they're in no way silenced and they're in no way under threat. And uh, they f- don't feel any reluctance to say all the things they've been saying all along. Okay, on that positive note, I want to shift to remdesivir. Remdesivir. The results of the NIAID study are out, and we see an improvement in a primary endpoint that um, has three categories of clinical improvement. Um, We see a not statistically significant, but uh, trend towards improved all-cause mortality in a double-blind placebo-controlled study in severe COVID. 
So that's all I know, because it's just a press release. But I really want to read the paper. I'm very curious. I think that's a quite a provocative finding. There's a five versus 10 day study that has a not statistically significant mortality difference that favors five days. The NIAID study is 10 days versus placebo 10 days. So what does that mean? Who knows? Hypothetically, a five days of remdesivir versus placebo might have looked even more favorable than 10 days versus placebo. But, you know, it's all speculative. These are two non-significant findings that someone's trying to daisy chain together. Um, and that's what I've seen uh, people say. Uh, but daisy chaining findings from clinical trials is a lot like plugging in surge protectors into one another. Uh, you can get away with it, but you might get shocked. Uh, and that's what you might find here. Um, and we really need to read the paper to know for sure. Also, we need some explanation as to why they switched the primary outcome. Some people have asked, if this is true, this three-point clinical scale, there's an improvement. What does that mean for the drug? Well, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It'll get regular approval, and it will be used. The drug's effect size appears modest. It doesn't appear to be a home run, um, so that's important to note. But, you know, it's a great thing to get an active drug, and it's a whole lot better uh, than the kitchen sink approach. The other thing I'd say about COVID that I've learned is, you know, not just the Santa Clara preprint. There are a lot of preprints out there and a lot of garbage. They have a lot of problems and flaws. There's so many uncontrolled studies that I can't make any sense of. There are terrible clinical trials going on. There are modeling studies that have been notoriously inaccurate. I think COVID-19, the science side of it, is, is going to be a sobering story. It's going to say, you know, when people were scared and dealing with an uncertain problem, they were extremely intolerant towards points of views that weren't their own. Um, even if, if we're perfectly honest, all our points of views are tinged with massive uncertainty, we were quick to embrace unproven treatments based on uncontrolled, historically controlled, quasi-experimental studies that were flawed. We disseminated results um, very quickly based on one-line press release without making full data available. Um, I think people are going to look back on this and it's going to look pretty bad, I think, in terms of what's going on in the science side of things. So on that positive note, we will shift gears and we will talk about something I'd rather talk about, which is malignant, how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. This is an excerpt from our book club discussion with the fellows of OHSU. So I think if you like the discussion, you should go back, listen to the introduction, which was last week's episode, which I think is probably the best episode of plenary session to date. And if you're really interested, to go out and buy the book. And hang tight. We are submitting the audiobook for ASX approval, and I hope to get it. But it's not an easy task. It's a tough approval. It's almost as tough as publishing a seroprevalence preprint and getting a positive review from Twitter. It's almost as tough as that, but perhaps not quite as tough. Maybe less ad hominem attacks. So stay tuned. All right, so I guess uh, we'll first we'll start with your agenda, Sven Olsen, since it seems like you have a few things you want to talk about, then I have a few things that I want to ask about. Um, probably one of my favorite things that I saw in your book was a single line where you said, working with students is part of my job. <laughs> That's right. I think that a lot of, uh, I think that a lot of academic people could take that to heart, um, and maybe it gets forgotten that if you're an academics, um, you know, it's, it's your job to work with trainees, and I think you... Definitely illustrate that nicely with a lot, a lot of shout outs, a lot of trainees, uh, and a lot of your work, which is cool. Yeah, I think that's funny that uh, you caught that. That's a, that was a, a subtle dig that was just thrown in there because as, as you and I know, there are 
there are all, there are a lot of good people I think at every university who really do you know really really like teaching and like interacting with trainees of all levels from students to fellows. But I think you and I also know there are some people at universities who they make their they make their name based on their research and and they may hire like you know uh, staff that they hire for their research and and they may have less of an incentive to uh, you know actually work with students. Um, and, and there are some people who kind of are disconnected entirely. They don't seem to work with students at all. Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, you, you've seen this over the years, huh? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's a spectrum, of course. But, the, you know, I think I made that in the chapter about financial conflict of interest. And I think the point was something like, um, you know, trialists say that if you, if you didn't give me an honoraria check, you know, I'm not going to help out on, uh, on the new randomized control trial. But then my argument would be that, but your job is a trialist. So, you know, you're already being compensated to run trials. And now you're saying you need extra compensation to do it. If you could imagine, you know, as a professor at a university, what if I said, I need the student to pay me personally every time I work with a student, um, because it's not enough that that's my job. It's, I need an extra payment. I think people would see how ludicrous it sounds. Yeah. All right. What else do you got? Um, I also... <laughs> I don't. Have you ever heard of the term shower thought? Sh shower thought? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's like a. If you look on Reddit, there's a whole thread of this, but it's a whole like thing you can find where uh, shower thought is like a profound realization that you have when you do something really mundane, like you're in the shower and you're like, "Oh, what about this?" I feel like a lot of your chapters are like shower thoughts, <laughs> where there's these like very, there's these very like um, I don't want to say simple, but they're very like seemingly obvious things that you think someone would have thought of already. Um, but no one had really. And I think uh, someone who's not in medicine, not medically trained could read this and think like, that's a pretty um, profound and like relevant thing to look at when maybe it's not as obvious. Give me an example so I can, so I can satisfy my ego. No. <laughs> uh, an example was like looking at, um, uh, when you were at ASCO and in a few years in a row, you tried to look at um, whether people would reveal their conflicts of interest. And within a single year, it spiked by like 30%. Yeah. 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 You know, that is, yeah, it's interesting. You know, something as simple as sitting in the crowd and, or looking at the abstracts and just tracking what the conflict of interest thing is simple to do, but yeah. Yeah. So that was a good, that's a, that's an example where I guess, you know, it's, um, you know, my friend uh, Bapu Jena at Harvard, he says that, you know, if you want to do research, like you can't, you know, when you're sitting somewhere, you shouldn't just look, you should see. And so you should try to like pick up on things. And so I was, you know, of course, sitting in all these ASCO talks and I noticed that they flashed their conflict of interest slide very quickly. And so I came back and I met with Aaron Boothby, who at that time was, I think, a third year medical student. Now he's a resident in, in Minnesota. And um, he uh, and I asked him to go through all the videos and just like time the slides and to count how many words are on the slide. And of course, you know, 40 percent, nearly 40 percent are flashed faster than a human can read. And then we also noticed that, yeah, ASCO had that change in their policy year to year, which went from you have to disclose every conflict you think is relevant to you have to disclose every conflict. And when you make the change, what you think is relevant to every conflict, well, then all of a sudden, uh, conflict of interest goes way up. It uh, goes up by, you know, I think 20 percentage points or something like that. Yeah. So now I, I'm, I'm getting a sense of where you really stopped reading the book. <laughs> oh, really? You're getting, this, you're getting that cut off? Because this is like chapter five, chapter six. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, 
I also like to say, um, I think your, your research emphasizes that, uh, you know, when you're in medical school or even before that, and you're thinking like, what would I want to do as a doctor? Um, I want to practice oncology. Do I want to be a surgeon? Blah, blah, blah. And it kind of goes to show that you could do anything and still find a really unique niche like this where you wouldn't really ever expect it. Like, I don't know. Did you ever expect that you'd be in this position no. and researching this when you went to medical school? No, I bet you didn't. No. And I bet a lot of people wouldn't. And I think that just goes to show that um, your options are pretty limitless when you go into medicine, not necessarily just to like practice one specific type of medicine and see those patients, you know? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I guess, um, yeah, like, you know, when I went into medical school, I thought there were only, you know, two careers. Like, if you were a researcher, I, I think I, di I didn't really even understand that there were people who made a career doing trials. I really thought it was only physician scientists. And then the other hat I thought was people who were pure clinicians. So I think that was kind of the limit of my understanding going in. And then over the years, I learned that, of course, there are trialists as well. Um, but health policy researchers are also kind of few and far between. You know, they're more in general internal medicine. And there's like, I don't think there are any in neurosurgery, for instance. And in oncology, I don't think there are many. We had a couple of people doing oncology drug policy. Not all of them are oncologists. Um, and a lot of them are people with health services background and might not be an oncologist. Um, so I thought it is kind of an unusual thing. And then um, I think that like a lot of people, you just start, I don't know, you just you just do what you want to do and see where you end up. And I don't know, it it, it is possible that I think it's possible that I could have been at a university, but it's also possible I could have gone to a private practice by now. You never know. Because, you know, you know I like, I like seeing all the tumor types, so I do have a gravitation to private practice. One day, maybe. Who knows? I just feel like um, maybe, hopefully, a lot of the trainees you worked with who may not have, you know, they were looking for a project to work on, and you mentioned a lot of them in the book, and maybe a lot of them didn't even know that this is something they were interested in doing, but they thought, well... But I was a pretty successful guy. He publishes with, with them, and then they probably found out, hopefully they liked what they were doing, and that made them go into that too. And I think uh, that should be praised. Yeah, I guess I hope that that is the case, that some fraction of people who worked with me on projects, and by now it must be, I don't know, maybe 100 people, train, like medical students, residents, and fellows, I hope some fraction maybe decide that it's right for them and they want to go into academics. But I also appreciate that it's not going to be a hundred percent and anyone who thinks that is deluding themselves as well. But yeah, that would be great if, you know, some fraction went in. If they know they get immortalized in one of the chapters of your book by getting a shout out. I know that's what I, you know, somebody was saying that like, uh, your book is like, you know, it's, it's very succinct cause it's like, you know, it's under 300 pages and you know, there are a lot of books that are monstrosities that many people, you know, don't make it through. But, um, but you know, even though it's under 300 pages, you know, like some of these pages, it was like six months of work to do the data collection on the back end to kind of even make the two points that are on the page, you know, because it's maybe, maybe based on 150, 200 publications that are kind of anchoring it and maybe 100 of which we had to do because nobody had done them. So yeah, I think it's like all that back end work that, but you know, when, when he did those papers, we didn't know, you know, I never knew it would kind of turn into a, like a book. It was only because I think over the years felt like um, it's so easy to misunderstand or argue with one piece of the puzzle, but when you kind of lay it all out there, I think it's a lot harder to argue with. Audrey looks like she wants to say something. Speaking of kind of when you said laying out the pieces of the puzzle, especially when you're trying to, I mean, the one thing I always think about when I'm reading this is just how relevant it is to today's pandemic in terms of just not the oncology specifically, but 
the, the discipline of understanding, like when you ask these basic questions, all of these basic questions are being unearthed right now of like, what can you trust? And like, how do you even go about making decisions? And all these principles, I think, still apply. So I feel like that is something to anchor this particular book about. Um, secondly, I'm always thinking like when you say like reading the puzzle pieces out, I'm, I, I think I told you this before, but um, especially when you have your plenary sessions that kind of cover certain topics. Once you once I read this book and then once I kind of went back and listened to all the podcasts, you're like, oh, OK, like I get it now because it was almost like uh, plenary sessions are kind of organized by topic du jour or the yeah. latest articles coming out, yeah. which is great when you have that base knowledge. And for people who are coming in, though, it might be a little bit more stochastic or, you know, like, like OK, I, I get that these this is an important point, but I can't quite fit it in the book. But I think what would be kind of cool is if you could tie in or. You know, I feel like you have a glossary of like citations, but also you have now the plenary session podcast that could also be like, I yeah. don't know, when you talk about surrogate, that's chapter two, you know, and stuff like that. I think making the larger point that this is all very convergent or that your your philosophy is very consistent um, and you have the research to back it up, which I think is a very strong point. Uh, that's That's a good point. I mean, I think that that's right because like, you know, pretty much the book was mostly written when I started making the podcast. And the ideas in the book were probably gelled probably even before the book was written. And so the podcast is like naturally just a sort of um, an application, I think, of the sort of theory of oncology that's outlined in the book. And so and so that's why, like, you know, every time you listen to a part of the podcast, if you if you hear it in isolation, it can be confusing. But if you see it in in the context of the book, you can be like, oh, that's kind of a chapter two issue, chapter three issue. Now he's regulatory use of surrogate endpoints, chapter six issue, financial conflict of interest and bias. And then mm -hmm. I, the chapters I thought that, you know, Sven would be most interested in is important trials in oncology and um, and and uh, principles of. Um, of oncologic management, like the chapters like 11, 12, 13-ish kind of section. But yeah, so I think that that's where it kind of ties together. Mm -hmm. Although my favorite, personally my favorite, are you going to release the section anytime soon? <laughs> oh yeah, I want, I'm going to. The moment we can get the audiobook up, I'm going to put that out. I guess we should tell them that like we, I, I made the audio recording of the book and then Audrey put musical accompaniment to the introduction. So she like hyper produced it. So we're going to put that out on plenary session. Like we can do it after the date of release. So after April 21st, we'll put it out. It's, it's funny because there's random quotes. Halcyon days of uh, the 80s and 90s or something that I just. Yeah, in the introduction. Yeah. Uh, Talking about think, how the price was actually uh, relatively good. Um, I think it was a very strong introduction in the sense where I, I personally didn't realize, again, like you were saying, how there's health services research and this whole different field, but it's like I didn't even make in my mind that distinction between policy and biology. And when you say cancer, I think we all assume biology, um, yeah. but kind of turning it on its head already and being like, this is not, like, I know this is maybe the association you think of, um, but there's so much more we can do if we understand the limitations of that particular field of knowledge and understand like how, how it's all navigated. And I think that's kind of helping people open up their eyes to understand like the behind the scenes process of like why these drugs come to market. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, I think like one of the central things that people in cancer medicine think from the leadership on down is that cancer is a biological problem and the moment we sequence everybody or figure out the right, you know, molecular marker for immunotherapy, we're gonna get, you know, uh, a, a new sort of 
surge in response and a surge in outcomes are going to improve. And I think cancer is to some degree a bi biological problem, but we have forgotten that because so many people in cancer medicine have neglected, I think, the policy side of things, how the drugs are come to market based on what evidence and at what price, um, that this is also part of the cancer problem. It stifles, I think, innovative therapies. It changes drug development priorities. It leads to very incremental progress at tremendous price and toxicity. And it is 100% a self-inflicted wound. And it's because like doctors who are oncologists and I think academic leaders of oncology, they have neglected it. The industry has kind of helped, you know, write the rules so that they benefit greatly and it's highly profitable. Um, so I think we kind of have, we've dropped the entire ball of cancer drug policy. So yeah, the whole point of the introduction is to say, I'm not going to tell you some biological magic that, you know, you don't know already. In fact, that's, you know, nobody's going to be able to do that. But the one thing we can fix, I think, is the policy side. What do you think, Claire? I, I thought, um, well, you, in the solutions part, you know, you dropped this idea of like reducing duplicative drug uh, development and trials and brought up the example of PD-1, PD-L1 immunotherapy. And I mean, that's an example of where, you know, we've made a lot of progress in certain cancers for sure, lung cancer, melanoma, changing outcomes. But I mean, God, it's just a mess. You know, it's like every PD-1, PD-L1 has its own trial and it's in each cancer and you know, you made like a small note of that as an example, but I wonder like, what are your ideas from a policy standpoint? Like, how do we get out of this mess we've created with these drugs and stop putting so much resource into, you know, their study and their development and try to do it in a more smart way? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think that like many of us notice that you know, I guess when the book was, when we started writing the book, how many drugs did we have? We had nivolumab, Pembro, Atezo, Derva, and Avelumab. And Avelumab is the only one approved for Merkel. But now Pembro is also approved for Merkel. So, you know, it, you could be in this ludicrous situation in the VA where you're giving Pembro, 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 Pembro. Then you get the one Merkel cell that one of the fellows is going to get once every decade. And then, and all of a sudden, you have to give Avelumab. You know, it's the only thing you have that, that phase two data for. And I guess, um, you know, it's not just my observation, but like there's so many papers now that look at what over 2000 clinical trials of PD-1 drugs, cumulative enrollment of 600,000 people when you only have like 600,000 total cancer deaths per year in the United States. And you're talking about cumulative trial enrollment of one class of drugs that's so large. Um, so, you know, this is the idea that we get into this Coke Pepsi mentality. But here it's like Coke, Pepsi, uh, Kroger Cola, Meyer Cola, you know, it's like 20 varieties and there's at least 20 PD-1 <laughs> drugs. And I guess the, the ideas I think that, you know, I tried to argue were one, the bladder cancer example. You know, you could say second line bladder cancer is an unmet medical need. I think we would all agree that it was an unmet medical need until it had one drug approval for PD-1 based on response rate. Then I think the FDA should say, we have satisfied the accelerated approval need with the one response rate drug um, we can still give a regular approval if somebody comes in with, uh, you know, an overall survival advantage, which did happen. But why do we have to give two or three more additional, you know, accelerated approvals based on response rate? Um, there's another example where we just saw uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. Didn't pembrolizumab just get an approval in second line or, uh, you know, in refractory hepatocellular carcinoma? We already have nivolumab based on response rate. And we have a phase three trial um, that shows 
Um, no, I'm sorry, it's the other way around. Nivolumab just got the approval and Pembro had it before. What's the order? Does it matter? <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. Okay, one of them had it, another had it again, yeah. Um, so I think that, like, why does it exist? I think it exists for a few reasons. One, everyone who makes a PD-1 antibody um, knows that they will never have to compete on price. Uh, and in fact, we see very little price competition among branded drugs in the same class. You know, I took you through the Gleevec, Dasatinib, Nilotinib story. We saw the same thing with all the TKIs in renal cell cancer. Uh, they didn't really lead to competition based on price. So everyone is coming in expecting that they can charge, you know, $200,000 for these drugs. They also know the FDA is not really going to enforce um, the fact that another drug was recently approved. It's not going to keep them from getting the approval. Um, they often don't have to use the other drug as a control arm. Um, didn't we just have uh, in lung cancer um, nivolumab, ipilimumab um, for, uh, uh, for TMB high lung cancer? When the control arm is chemotherapy, who, has, who is giving chemotherapy anymore to lung cancer? We haven't been giving that for you know, two, three years now. Um, so, you know, that, but the company knows that they can still get an approval with sort of a substandard control arm. And I think if you just change the rules around control arm and the rules about how many drugs can get accelerated approval in a row, um, I think then that would go a long way to curbing the Me Too mentality. Hey, Benai. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Molly. I guess why, so I mean, for other classes that you have that like statins or DOAX, you have a formulary that is developed. And even if there's all those options, um, institutions and insurance companies will eventually decide which one's available. Why do you think that that is not actually happening for the PDL1 agents? Hmm. That's a good question. I guess I would say that, um, you know, to some degree, when they are sort of duplicated approvals in the same exact setting, there is, insur there is insurance companies using sort of pathways to leverage people to one versus another drug. For instance, um, uh, Atezo and Pembro in lung cancer. You know, we have... Uh, we have Atezo, Bev, Paclitaxel, Carbo, uh, but we also have Pembro, um, Platinum, uh, Pemetrexid, and I think a lot of people are pushing us in the Pembro, Platinum, Pemetrexid way. Um, I think, Do you think it's because they are used in combo in different ways, and so people feel uncomfortable, you know, the Atezo, Bev, Platinum, yeah, yeah. you know, People don't feel comfortable exchanging one for another because they, they should be the same. Of course, really. I think they should be the same. But um, yeah, I think that's part of it. They were tested in a certain way. People are uncomfortable exchanging. But then the other part is that look at how some of these companies have cleverly positioned themselves as the sole, even though, you know, it's the same PD-1, PDL one drug, they've cleverly carved out a market share that nobody else has. So look at semiplumab in cutaneous squamous cell cancer. What other drug are you going to give for cutaneous squamous cell cancer patients? You know, the, the, the Merkel cell example, Avalumab swooped in there. Pfizer was late to the game, and so they bought off this chunk. And so in those settings, you might have only one technically has approval. And so when you're in, you know, a VA setting or you're in, you know, you, you technically don't have data that another drug would have the similar response rate. Well, yeah. I assume there's keynote studies for those conditions. Yeah, now, I haven't. Yeah, but but now there is Merck, now Pembro has approval in Merkel, but um, okay. So are they, have they just been really slow to pick up on those conditions and like not bothered because of market share? I, and now we'll just see the Pembro data for those diseases later, or I guess that's a good question. So I guess my guess is that Merck is probably strategic in which trials they prioritize based on market share. Um, but you know who knows? Only Merck will know the answer to that question. But uh, and it is likely that they will go after these indications uh, with time. Yeah. 
I mean, if you read a lot of these big immunotherapy trials, I feel like the drug companies justify this kind of mess by the fact that there are like biological differences amongst these drugs that they explain in their introduction is like maybe would, you know, give a different response than, you know, like a tezolizumab, isn't it like PD-1 and PD-2? Or- yeah, right, right. So I, I don't know. I just think this is just such a mess. And it's unfortunate we've gotten ourselves into this. I think if you just like calculated the amount of money that could be saved by like the U.S. healthcare system if say like only one of these types of drugs was like allowed and the rest had to be like generic or not reimbursed. I mean, it'd be astronomical. It's just really mind-blowing. But. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, how many times do people say something to me that um, uh, it has more ADCC? The antibody, uh, I don't know, what is it? Obinutuzumab has more ADCC over uh, rituximab, okay? Uh, or all these sort of laboratory or theoretical reasons why one antibody would be better than another, um, when in reality, what you really care about is, well, does it improve survival over the other one? And the answer is we almost never know. You know, Go Nishikawa and, um, and uh, Ja Lu did that paper on like head-to-head monoclonal antibodies in cancer, and we found that, you know, despite the fact there were often many drugs in a class, um, they were often never tested head-to-head against each other. Um, so I think that that's right, that companies will try to distinguish. You know, the other example is outside of oncology. Look at um, nabivolol. Nabivolol as a beta blocker, um, you know, bistolic. Uh, y- you hear all sorts of stories why bistolic is a, is a really good beta blocker. The only thing different about it, I think, is its price tag is astronomical. But the evidence base, of course, is much stronger for Coreg and metoprolol. And yet people, you know, were marketed to take nabivolol or bistolic, you know? So I think it happens in all drug classes that that people use sort of a pathophysiology veil to justify why some new drug is better rather than the hard and fast datas. One thing I was gonna ask you though, Vinay, do you think there are some of the statins and some of the DOACs that are better? Cause I actually think there probably are, you know, at least within the DOACs, I think the, the BID dosing has something to it. You could make similar arguments based on do- dosing schedules for some of the other drugs, um, do you think some of them actually are better? Because you're not going to get comparative trials for any of these. Well, I have a solution for that, but... Um, uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will wait for when that solution happens, but in the current real world... But I think DOAX is, I mean, I do think DOAX, the BID dosing is better, and probably some of the once daily dosed DOAX, Sven can comment, probably should have been dosed BID. In fact, we know trough levels and things like that. And you know, some of the companies, I think in litigation have been sued and, and, and may have felt uh, that they internally thought they should be BID dosing, but they thought that they were marketing advantages to keeping them once daily. Um, but that's a very different scenario because in DOAX, you're often talking about things like atrial fibrillation, where people are gonna live, you know, a decade. And you're talking about, and small differences, difference between one and a half percentage point stroke and two percentage point stroke, you know, that can be a meaningful difference in a huge population. But let's take, um, you know, let's take some of these cancer conditions. Do we think that there's a big difference between uh, serafinib and lenvantinib and HCC when you're talking about median overall survival in Medicare data sets of four months? Um, was one going to be 3.25? Okay, breast cancer then. Breast cancer. Lots of people. And they can live many years. Three-year median survival, probably, yeah. So which which drugs in breast cancer are you thinking? I think it doesn't have its um, adjuvant space yet, like a Tezo for Impassion. But I'm sure we will have all of them in the metastatic space with some combo at some point within the next couple of years. No? I guess I, I'm, I guess like my thought about breast cancer is I'm trying to think in breast cancer, 
Is there a nice example where there is a Me Too drug competing with a first-in-class drug? Because, um, you know, pertuzumab, of course, in addition to trastuzumab, uh, lapatinib, you know, really never, it's not, in, I mean, probably not as good as trastuzumab in head-to-head -head studies. It's never been shown conclusively, but it doesn't look so good. Um, and then the DM1, TDM1, you know, maybe it looks a little bit better in some of these trials than, say, lapatinib, cytobine, and... Uh, uh, and, and but I do think, oh, yeah. but I do think for the PDL one, they're going to keep trying different combinations because nabpaclitaxel probably wasn't the right combination. Um, you probably want platinum use. Yeah. So I think we're probably going to see Pembro, Nevo, all attack that space. Yeah. And so you do have then um, maybe a better argument for is there a difference between them since you do have a larger market share, greater longevity potentially. I guess, but then you're talking about the triple negative breast cancer space, so median survival is going to shrink from that. I guess it's hard for me to think about that because I guess it's a little bit off on the horizon because we don't have multiple approvals yet in the in the triple negative breast cancer space. We just have the one, um, uh, to my knowledge, isn't that right? The only one that we have is uh, yeah, is uh, is, uh, is um, uh, atezolizumab, atezolizumab yeah. uh, abraxane, and then the challenge with that study is that the confirmatory follow-up of that study, the overall survival has vanished. And so I guess one question is, is it going to keep its approval or is it going to lose the approval? Well, it's only for PD-L1 positive. Yeah, that subgroup. Yeah. But even in that, even in, I think the updated analysis of that trial is the global OS has collapsed and they have hierarchical testing, so they can't even test the subgroup OS. So I think it's like in a tough situation. I don't know what the, it's going to happen with that drug. But anyway, well, let's, I want to ask Sunny. She can talk about these next in class drugs. What is the difference between ibrutinib and acalabrutinib in those studies? Um, I mean, there's a head to head trial that's ongoing, but um, there's a, um, it hasn't been reported yet um, in other um, studies comparing it to chemoimmunotherapy. Um, acalabrutinib has similar um, side effects. Um, like a brutinib. But it's marketed as a different side effect profile, is it not? I don't know about the marketing. I think um, I, I haven't looked into how it's been marketed. I see. But your, but your point is that uh, right now, based on the available evidence, you, you don't feel strongly that it's dramatically different than ibrutinib. Uh, that, that's right. There's, um, it, it's a similar drug, similar effects maybe as um, effective as ibrutinib, but um, it was developed as a drug that would have improved side effect profiles for brutinib, so it would be a better drug, but there's no um, evidence that that's the case yet. And um, the price is also almost the same as ibrutinib. So um, like in, if you do a comparative analysis, there's um, no benefit to it, but there's been a lot of um, resources spent on developing it and studying it in trials. So you could consider that it's kind of a waste to develop it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's that that's that's right. Yeah, it was it was developed under the the proviso that it's going to be improved uh, tolerability and a less different toxicity profile. And then they have yet to this day to show it. And then they've brought it to market with a number of controlled trials where patients with 17P were denied ibrutinib, which even though that was standard of care during the years in which those trials ran, which is not so good. So how how easy is it to change a trial of protocol? Because usually would it take over a year to come up with the design and the control arm and but like things change so so quickly if there's a new standard of care, is it should it should be easy to change the control arm, I suppose. It's a good question. 
I guess I would say that it's funny to me because when um, when the change goes in a direction to make the trial more likely to be positive, it appears very effortless to do. Uh, look at the remdesivir trial. Uh, they're enrolling right now, and then they change the sample size from 400 to 2400 in the primary endpoint from a dichotomous endpoint to a seven-point scale. And both those things are going to crank up the power on that study to find a smaller difference statistically significant. So that direction is very easy to change. But in some of these trials, as you know, it's like um, novel drug against standard of care. But standard of care isn't like allowing you to order anything you want at the restaurant. It's like a fixed menu. And you can only pick one of these three drugs. And so you're prohibited from using some of these other drugs that reality you would probably use in your practice. Um, and then let's say time goes on and you learn that one of those other drugs actually is the new de facto standard of care. I think there is, it's very easy for them to go and liberalize that control arm and say, okay, well, you know what? Now we can't prohibit people from using it. Well accepted standard of care. And you know, one of the points I make in the book in that point on global oncology, the whole chapter, I think chapter 13, is that you wouldn't be able to even accrue this trial in the United States. You have to go globally often to accrue a trial where people are putting people on control arms that are beneath US standard of care. And so I do think, you know, uh, and we have a paper that's coming with Talal um, where we look at, you know, how many people um, maybe should have should have changed a control arm in the trial course. But what we find more often is that the answer is they knew it was an inferior control arm going into the trial rather than somewhere along the way. Oh, I had a question on that one because yeah. your example of the fatnib in yeah. China. Yeah. There are international meetings with these things. So your oncologist in China most certainly knew that, you know, Fitnam was an option. Why would they enroll in that trial? Like, was it just basically an opportunity for their patients to get an EGFR inhibitor, do you think? Because they probably knew that those other TKs were there. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say, I'm sure they knew the other TKIs were there. I'm sure they, um, they may even have prescribed it to some of their own patients, particularly the well-off patients who could afford it. Um, so you're asking why after we knew EGFR-directed therapy was superior um, to platinum therapy in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, were we accruing a trial that tested the exact same question with the control arm of platinum therapy, uh, the, the Lux lung studies? And I guess I would say that one possibility is they felt that by having the trial at our center, this is the most, fa this is the most generous interpretation, by having the trial at our center, at least, you know, whatever, 100, 200, 300 people on the, con on the, on the interventional arm will get an EGFR-directed therapy. At least it'll be 300 more than who otherwise would get it. Um, even if nobody ever gets it after the trial because the drug is unaffordable, um, and even if there are all these issues. Okay, that's, that's the most generous. I think the less generous interpretations are um, that running those trials probably brings a great deal of revenue to their institutions. Uh, there may even be personal um, financial benefits to the trialists to publish in certain journals. My understanding is that in China, if you were the first author on a journal and a certain impact factor, um, you would personally get paid um, sort of a massive sum of money. I forget the number off the top of my head, but like a, like a, like a, like a quarter or a fifth of your yearly salary or something tremendous. Uh, Sonny's laughing. So, somebody else might have heard this as well. I mean, I think this is documented. So there are all these sort of perverse motivations to publish in these journals, which have led, you know, in many cases, China to become a meta-analysis mill, people to run these kinds of trials. But you know, the point of view that we articulate in a couple of ethical articles and then in the book is that you know it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because, and it's almost exploitative to China, 
because people in China who cannot afford a drug that costs, I forget, it's in the book, but 60 or $70,000 a year, um, are asked to enroll in a study where if it's positive, the drug is gonna cost at least that much or more, uh, and they're still not gonna have access to the drug. And, and you know, I do find that really problematic. But you know, I think the similar question is, how often do you see somebody put somebody on a trial where you are wondering, I don't know if that's a great trial, and you're trying to sort out their motivations. I think it's, I think it's often not just in China, but it's often in every setting. I, I feel that way quite often. I'm curious. Um, something pretty topical now is, you know, people on Twitter are saying that they're realizing medical conferences are kind of a waste, and they're they're sort of having their eyes open to the fact that, hey, I'm actually kind of happy that this conference is canceled and. And you, you talk about that in your book, too, that a lot of these are, are kind of uh, almost like a Disney World uh, where you have to walk through the show floor and the plush carpeting. Yeah. How do you think that's actually going to change going forward now? Do you think it'll actually reduce, substantially reduce the number of in-person conferences? That's a great question. I know exactly where your bookmark is, Sven Olsen. Your bookmark is right there in chapter six and a half. I know your bookmark. I know where your bookmark is. No, so. I actually got past that. I actually <laughs> got past that. Okay, so what do I think is going to happen? I guess I would say I think um, you know I'm a I'm a great critic of these conferences because I mean, and along with others, because one, it's spilling gallons of fossil fuel to bring people from all around the world into a COVID petri dish, which is what we call a conference these days, uh, so that COVID can spread rampantly throughout the world, um, where they can stuff the overhead bins with those god-awful tubes with those god-awful posters um, so that people can come and hang up the poster and stand by it as I once did for like six hours where nobody ever talked to you and nobody ever looked at the poster to crumple it up and throw it away this hundred dollar poster um, and to have lavish dinners and and I think I talk about the carpeting in the in the exhibit hall and how I once at literally twisted my ankle in it because it was it was too plush um, you know, so it's this opulent affair where one wonders about the information transfer and all these things. Um, and yet, I believe that when this is all over, it will uh, continue at the exact same rate. And here's my reasoning why. I think a lot of us don't like to travel for them and a lot of us are frustrated by this. But um, the people who really are pushing for having the conference, um, they gain tremendously from having the conference. So one, um, a number of academic experts and disease sites go to the conferences and then they do all the evening events where you can make tens of thousands of dollars from doing all the evening events. And so for some people, it's like the most lucrative week of their life, a week of their year. Um, and so I think that those people who make money from going to those evening events, who are all the big names or tend to be the big names in the field, they're not gonna wanna stop. The second is the conference uh, is probably the prime source of revenue for most of the academic professional societies. And so if you cut away the conference or made it virtual or, you know, made it less fun, I think it's going to really cripple their income streams. And, you know, I talked about ways in which they should solve that problem, but I don't think they're going to want to do that. And then the third thing is the real value of the conference is that it allows you to shape somebody's impression of a product even years before the product is launched. So years before you know Selenexer, we're going to teach you about nuclear export and inhibiting nuclear export. Um, years before you know about ibrutinib, we're gonna teach you about Bruton's tyrosine kinase and how you might have forgotten about it, but why it's really, really relevant to cell signaling. So it allows people to groom early data, uncontrolled data. Um, it allows people to sort of create an impression of their product 
um, in sort of the most favorable light. It's like the um, it's like the the the, the Tinder page uh, for a drug product coming to the market. It's like a dating advertisement, so that you have a. It, they're not picking photos at random. They're picking the most favorable photos to show, and 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 that's going to continue because the people who it, who benefit from that. Um, you know, are the large sponsors of the conference and they have so much financial stake in that perception. You know, I often think it's funny that, just look at the drugs we're reaching for in COVID. What are the drugs that people are, you know, texting me about? Oh, Tossi, Ecolizumab, you know, um, uh, Acalabrutinib is going to phase three and Selenexer is going to phase three. Wow, isn't it, isn't it so interesting that of all the sort of cancer drugs that are useful in COVID, they're only the branded $100,000 a year drugs. Not a single one of the off-brand older drugs could possibly be useful in COVID. I don't see anyone giving uh, lodocytoxin or etoposide for HLH. That's certainly not gonna work. But ecolizumab, okay, ecolizumab, now now that's worth a shot. You know, so I think that that's sort of like, even in my mind, when I hear etoposide, I think, you know, What's what's a kind of like um, if I was in like a psychology couch and they say what's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear etoposide? I'm going to say uh, old yuck yuck cytotoxic. But when I hear you know a, a drug like selenexer, um, um, I'm like oh that sounds that sounds nice, doesn't it? And a novel drug, uh, nuclear export. I mean that sounds really good. Uh, only when I look at grade five AEs then then I, the story changes. But you know I think so. That, you can give me etoposide over selenexer any day. <laughs> something that works yeah it's that's what i would say i'd say keep i guess i would say keep, keep me away from selling Exer. um do you think that long term there is some um leading mechanism where this new drug that came out 10 years later if it really provides no value or is marginal people stop using it but we just have a very ineffective way where they first come to market get approved the drug company makes built billions of dollars, but eventually people don't use the drug where, what is it that in pancreatic cancer, you live 10 days longer? Yeah, erlotinib, yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're gonna see it in your career in the next few years when serafinib, Bayer Pharmaceutical, finally comes off the last you know, dregs of patent, you will see people will abandon serafinib like nobody's business. Um, I think we saw that actually, uh, data from Stacey Dusitzina, this is not a bad drug, it's a good drug, imatinib, but look at imatinib's market penetration over time. As we groomed nilotinib and disatinib, by the time generic imatinib came, it only had about a third of market share, and market share had shrunk. Serafinib already has direct competition, lenvantinib, and the moment serafinib falls off patent and generic manufacturers come out there, I think you're going to see the makers of lenvantinib, the experts supported by lenvantinib are going to come out with a super strong case for why we all need lenvantinib. And so you're going to see that. So I think that marginal drugs like serafinib is an HCC. Um, when, when enough years go by, um, if they are really marginal, sometimes they, they, they get replaced with a different marginal drug rather than um, anyone ever admitting that perhaps serafinib wasn't like the greatest drug. I mean, I always wonder, you know, if you had a randomized trial of serafinib as it's actually given in the real world, like to the people we're actually giving serafinib to, is there any survival benefit in the actual real world use of that drug? And the answer is who knows, because you know, we've given that drug and it doesn't go over well so, so often. What about the chapter on what should fellows do? The last chapter, is that the last chapter? Yeah, I appreciated your advice on journals, like picking a few key journals and you know, picking an article based on, you know, phase three RCT or whatever to read. Um, 
thought that was a really good suggestion. I'm going to try to do that while I'm home on outpatient rotation. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's the key to like kind of only to keep up with it on the go. Because if you try to do it all, you know, on vacation or at the end of a month, it's like overwhelming. I've been bad about it. I think that as time goes on, I'm not as good at keeping up with like, I don't know, I don't, I don't set aside that time to read like I, like I want to. So maybe I will get back into it. You get pulled in other ways. Any one time I have about uh, 15 to 20 tabs on my Safari or Google Chrome uh, papers that I say, I'm going to read that. And then it sits there and I only get to it when my computer has to restart to make a massive update. And then I need, I need to actually read them. <laughs> I had a question about um, medical Twitter, and this is coming up a lot now too because of all the COVID stuff happening, being disseminated on Twitter. I'm curious if like, is there ever gonna be any regulation of what physicians can or can't say on Twitter or along those lines, is it ever gonna be citable? Like uh, you you reference someone's tweet, you know, cause like it, it comes close to being editorials and commentaries that you'd see in New England Journal months after a paper comes out, except you see it immediately. But I'm just wondering if that's ever going to get more regulation. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, this like it's kind of separate from from what I get into, but I don't know. I think it's interesting. I mean, I don't know where to start. One is, is, is it true that in medicine we have disinformation, like we do in political speech, and you know everything from. Uh, you know, conspiracy theories in politics have to do with pizza parlors to, you know, who created this virus and, you know, crazy conspiracy theories. I think the answer is yes. You know, medicine is not unique. We have disinformation like anybody else. But to me, disinformation is tricky because um, there's clearly things that are false and wrong in disinformation. Um, But then there are also things that are um, healthy debate and people might wrongly label disinformation. and, and I think there've been some people who found uh, like posts that they thought were innocuous um, questioning, you know, for instance, you could just take the universal use of masks, which is something I talked about in the last plenary session. And I think that that's something where, I'm not talking about for healthcare workers, I'm talking about, you know, when, C- when CDC says that everybody in America should wear a mask when they go outside, um, I think the evidence base is uncertain. So that's my point of view, I don't know. You wanna do it, do it. You know, if you don't wanna do it, don't do it. So that's what I argued in the last episode. Um, but I think you could argue, some, there, there might be some people who say that even holding that view that it's uncertain is disinformation and then you know, we could quelch that speech. So I guess what I think is, I think it is dangerous when you start to say, even th- though I sympathize with you and I see so much foolishness and things that are wrong on Twitter, just like totally wrong and promotion of like we saw recently TPA. Oh, we should give TPA to people with COVID. Yeah, I see you're shaking your head on the the scan. You know, we should give people TPA boluses because, you know, even though this person has COVID and is difficulty oxygenating and they've had COVID for weeks and they've gradually had worsening oxygenation, they may also now have massive or submassive PE. And even if they did, the evidence for TPA would be lousy, but let's give TPA anyway. So that's like kind of logic. You know, it's, I think, bad logic. Um, and, And it's dangerous to make those recommendations. But I guess I would say that even though I feel so strongly about that, I guess I am, at the end of the day, somebody who thinks the best way to combat bad speech is better speech and not to stifle bad speech. So I would not personally favor, you know, blocking those accounts. I, you know, I see this account that keeps promoting hydroxychloroquine, some doctor. Um, and I think that there's a better way than to just, you know, disable his account. Um, because one day you disable the hydroxychloroquine doctor's account, 
you know? And then maybe the next day you disable somebody's account who says maybe universal mask isn't a great idea. Um, but, you know, so, you know, it's a kind of a slippery slope to what, what, is, a, what is satisfactory evidence. Um, all right, so those are my thoughts. In terms of citability, I think that um, it's already cited. Like we've cited in papers and we've done whole papers on Twitter. You know, um, we did that paper uh, in American Journal of Medicine that we cite uh, somebody's tweet and we did a whole paper in response. But uh, in terms of like getting academic credit for doing it, you know, my bias is that even though I am somebody who does podcasting and Twitter and all that stuff, I think that it will never it will never get you real academic credit. It's not going to be the same as publishing. And even if someday universities promoted people to full professor based just on Twitter, I think that the colleagues would silently think lesser of them and and they wouldn't have the same reputation as if they had earned that on the backs of peer review publications and it would make and you know so i think that i i wouldn't even put my stock i mean i think it's a i mean i personally view it as a way to amplify um and get a paper out there you 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 and i know how hard how few people read some of these papers that we've written and at least this is a way you can get 10 people to read a paper um but i wouldn't claim that it is a form of scholarship in and of itself just yet, because I think that other people don't really see it that way. It's just interesting that there's things like these tutorials you see that are actually can be pretty elaborate and um, like pretty well thoroughly researched and they actually have references for different points and these tutorials go on, you've done them yourself, they go on for, you know, 10 or more posts and it comes a close to being like a review paper, you know, like a short little review. I agree. And you think that was a lot of work to, to put into that um, and they should get credit for it. But I don't know where that line is drawn, you know. I agree. That's well put. I mean, like David Steensma's tutorials on the history of uh, hematology, amazing. It's as good as a history book. Uh, some other tutorials I see about pathophysiology uh, and I get emails about where it tells a very plausible story uh is uh maybe have some holes in it you know rudyard kipling's just so stories it's the books on like you know why does the giraffe have a long neck and he tells like sort of a story about the giraffe was reaching for some leaves and the leaves grew higher and then he kept reaching his neck his neck grew longer that kind of thing um there's a joke in biology that you can come up with a just so story for everything you know why the world is the way it is you can tell some sort of story but it doesn't mean it's true and some of what i see on sort of twitter is that just so storytelling um but you're right, some of it is like really good, high quality, and probably better than reviews. I guess my only thought is that um, you're not getting a lot of credit for writing reviews, in my opinion, as well. I mean, there are some journals that I think people will value a review from. The journals that are the highest circulation, the highest read journals, those reviews are going to get you some credibility. But a lot of people are working on reviews for, what is the journal called? Current Reviews in Oncology or something. A journal that... I've never even physically seen or something like that. And people writing like 8,000 word reviews. And I think, you know, the irony is you're asking like, why don't you get more credit for a tutorial? But my argument would be that you're probably getting as little credit for writing that 8,000 words in that journal no one reads as a tutorial. You know, it's probably, you just don't even see that that's the way the world is working. Um, but I think that, that, yeah, those, some of those things are, are not going to get a ton. But some of the tutorials, some of the tutorials that are really good, you know, they should be valued. But the person who does them does get a currency, which is they get more followers. So the next time they have something, it's going to get, you know, order of magnitude more looks. I mean, that's one of my thoughts on Twitter, which is I hate when people say, here's a list of must follow accounts. That's not that's not helping anybody. The people who follow an account just because it was suggested to them, they're not going to like, you know, if the account doesn't produce things that interest them, they're not going to stay following that account. They might unfollow that account or they're going to be disinterested in that account. It's not helping that account holder. If you want that person 
to have a lot of followers, that person should tweet things that generate interest in, in from the audience. And it is really kind of a meritocracy. You want it to grow naturally. You know, I, I don't want anyone to follow me who doesn't like what I'm talking about. So please don't ever record, you know, so when I see somebody as says like, you should follow this guy, I'm like, oh God, no, that's like more headaches for me. Just gonna be a bunch of people who click on me and then they're gonna realize they don't, they don't like half of what I say and they're gonna be arguing with me all the time. I was like, I don't want that. And it doesn't help anybody. So I think that that's all misguided. But I think people make those recommendations the same way they would as like, oh, you're, you're, when you start fellowship in oncology and they say, you should probably put these bookmarks on your computer. You should have JAMA Oncology. You should have JCO. You should have blood, you know, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, exactly. And when they tell you, you should read a book like Malignant. And I guess, <laughs> and I guess, you know, what I think is when people tell me I should read a journal or read an article or read a book, uh, I, I don't know about you, or they give you a book. Those books collect dust in my room. When people give me a book, it's like the like the least useful thing. Like if you want somebody to read an article or a book or you know follow somebody on account, you've got to make them want that. Like you've got to make them do it on their own accord. So like I, I I don't like to give people books because I know what how I feel when people give me books, which is like they sit around for seven years and maybe I'll read it ten percent of the time. But because I have a stack of books that I've already planned on reading. And I bet when you were a fellow and somebody says, click all, make all these bookmarks for Jam Oncology, all that stuff, then I bet you don't look at it until one day when you wake up and you're like, God damn it, I really want to learn oncology, so now I'm going to build my own habit, right? You're laughing. I see you. You didn't look at it, did you? Somebody set up your browser with all these bookmarks for journals. You didn't look at it for years, did you? No, no, no. I actually do. I make a point. I, do have, I have like a core maybe of six or seven papers or journals that I look at on a regular basis. But I've narrowed it because of my focus now, so. All right, great. So I guess that's it. That's a wrap, huh? Thanks for coming, everybody. Thanks for reading the book. Yeah, thanks for sending it to us. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so have a good one. Stay safe. Make sure you take your ecolizumab to avoid COVID. <laughs>